And now for something completely different. Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And welcome to the show this morning. Of course, it is uh, Monday, the day after Super Bowl. So you may be sleeping in this morning after a 75-minute overtime. You know, so, <laughs> so that's okay. Uh, you can always catch this stream live at our YouTube channel. Of course, also the recorded version, podcast, it's all there for you. So if, you, if you're sleeping in a little bit this morning, that's okay. Certainly understand that. Of course, you know, everybody knew that the Chiefs were going to win because otherwise Taylor Swift would break up with Kelsey. She'd have to write a song about it. And, you know, it was, it was actually funny. Sarah Jessica Parker was at the game last night sitting behind Tom Hanks, reading a book the entire time. So she's, she's got her feet propped up. She's reading a book. People are scoring. She's reading her book. So <laughs> but she was there. So, uh, anyway, a uh, couple of things to talk about, of course. Uh, Friday, the markets hit 5,000, right? Uh, nice big round psychological number. We talked about this last week. Wrote an article today. It's inevitable. It's going to happen. Um, you know, when markets just get that close to these kind of big round psychological numbers, it's just kind of like a magnet. It's just going to kind of drag, um, you know, prices up. Traders just kind of want to get there. Now, what happens after that? Uh, markets have a bit of momentum right now, so markets can certainly travel a bit, you know, higher here for a bit. Um, just kind of, you know, think about, um, you know, kind of a, you, you throw a ball up in the air and as it's coming down, it's just going to come down until it, you know, stops going out. It just has momentum. Um, and that's the way the market is. There's just a lot of momentum behind the markets right now, a lot of FOMO, um, which is dragging investors off the sidelines. You know, there's a lot of investors that were convinced that there was going to be a bear market. Uh, you know, 2022, the market's going down and then we had a rally and well, it's a bear market rally. It's going to give up. It's going to go lower. You know, we have all these other problems. We've got the dollar, this, that, the debt. You know, we're just issuing too much debt. And the market just keeps, you know, rising because as the market rises, it drags those people off the sidelines and finally just pulls them back into the markets. So again, you know, you're, this market can last here for a bit longer. So again, you don't want to be too bearish too soon. But as we talked about in this, in this weekend's newsletter, so if you go to our website, download this week's weekend's newsletter, if you, if you haven't gotten it yet, um, if you subscribe to it, we email it to you every Saturday. But as we discussed in there, we're going to start taking some profits um, in portfolios. There's just a lot of stocks now that are outside of their target ranges. So in other words, as we build a portfolio, we say, okay, this position is going to be, you know, 3% of the portfolio or five or whatever. The, because of this rally in the market, a lot of those positions are way outside of their target weights. And so we're going to reduce those back to target. We're not selling them, right? We're just reducing them back to target, doing a little bit of risk management, raising a little bit of cash. There's some positions in the portfolio that are more defensive in nature. We'll probably add to those a bit uh, just in anticipation that we are going to get a correction. Um, as we'll talk about in a minute, there's some things that are kind of showing themselves in the markets right now that suggest that even though there's a, a, a lot of momentum behind the markets right now, and there's certainly the, the possibility this market can go higher in the short term, we're also exhibiting a lot of signs that we may be closer to a short-term correction consolidation than not. And again, you know, a 5 or 10% correction in the market, like we had last year, 
certainly should be expected. That happens every single year. You get a 5 or 10% correction. So absolutely normal. You should expect that. Markets are very much ahead of themselves. And so we're going to get a correction sometimes here. But it could be a couple of months from now. It could be three months from now. You know, markets can, can, can be exuberant a lot longer than you think. Remember last year, we went from March to July before we had that 10% correction. So again, we've got November to March. <laughs> you know, we've been in a very long run here. But again, uh, a lot of momentum. So, you know, those are the, the, these are the important things to remember, but that's why we're going to start looking. You know, we know this correction is coming, absolute certainty. There's going to be a correction. No doubt about that. But, you know, we need to take a little bit of action in advance, but not get overly bearish. And so, you know, there's a lot of people are like, well, why don't you just go to cash and wait it out? Well, because this market can go up a lot more first <laughs> before it corrects. So we want to participate as much as we can, but start managing risk along the way. So let's talk a little bit about the markets because this is what you need to know before the bell this morning. So again, talked about the fact that markets are above 5,000, completely fine. But there's some, as I said, there are some, certainly some things kind of underneath the surface that warrant being a little bit more cautious. So first thing is, is the market has now been positive 14 out of 15 weeks in a row. Now, that hasn't happened since 1972. So... The important similarity to that, of course, is that this rally is being driven by the Magnificent Seven, right? We hear that a lot. We've written about it, you know, basically a handful of stocks really kind of driving the markets. The similarity to 1972 was back then it was the Nifty 50. So big blue chip companies driving the market at that point in time. Now, if you don't, if, you know, if you don't remember what happened following 1972 is the 1973-74 bear market. So again, markets were hitting all-time highs in 1972. It was the Nifty 50. Everything was fine. Lots of momentum in the markets. And then you had the 73, 74 bear market. But it took longer, right? 1972 and the bear market didn't start till 73. So, you know, markets can continue to go a lot longer than you think. But again, just markets have been running very long. And so when you have 14 out of 15 weeks, you're going to get a breather here. Um, if you take a look at the last time we had a... a 2% correction in the S&P in a given day. It's been over 150 days. So again, a very long period without volatility. This has been a very low volatility advance. Market declines are very mild. Market advances just kind of grind higher every day. The, uh, of course, the markets are very overbought on a relative strength basis, also consistent with periods. Now look, markets can stay overbought a lot, you know, for a long period of time. But these overbought conditions typically lead to a reversal of the market at some point. Some corrective or consolidative action gives you a bit of a pullback. Take a look at volatility. Volatility, the volatility index continues to be very, very low. Again, there's no concern right now of a volatile event, right? So there's no concern of a correction or a crash within the markets. And again, so you have very low volatility. You've got markets that have just been kind of, you know, pushing higher every single day. And as Sam Stolval once says, like when all the buyers have bought, who's left to buy? So at some point you're going to get somebody for whatever reason raises their hand and says, I'm out, I'm going to sell. And then you kind of get a cascade of selling. What causes it? Who knows? right? Could be an event, could be a topic, could be CPI this week, lots of stuff going on. But there, there's a lot of things that, are, that, that can pop up and just trigger. And again, I'm not talking about a crash. So don't go run off and say, oh, Lance said the market's going to crash. I'm not saying that. But a 2 to 3 to 5 to 10% correction, certainly very likely. 
it's, it's, it's a very high probability sometime over the next three to four months. So again, just uh, timing is always the issue. But just remember that this is the way markets work over time. You know, importantly, as we continue to talk about, this remains a very lopsided market overall because, again, it's been just primarily large caps driving the markets. You know, we, we talked about small mid caps continuing to really just kind of grind sideways here, have these little spurts of activity and performance, but still remain well below their all-time highs. So, again, you know, uh, small cap, mid cap still on a sell signal here. So again, we may see some rotation also within the markets. So again, that's also one thing to think about. We may start to see some profit taking in some of these large cap names, maybe rotate to other areas of the market that have been underperforming, lagging, those type of issues as well. So again, that's part of the reason for the rebalancing of our portfolio, taking profits and big winners. Uh, you know, NVIDIA as an example just had a, a, just a, a very, very large run this year so far, just, just since the beginning of the year. Uh, NVIDIA's had a very, very strong advance, you know, almost just going parabolic here. So, you know, take some profits in stocks like that that we own, buy some companies that have not been performing as well, but pay big dividends. Those tend to be a little bit more defensive in nature. So again, those are the type of actions to think about. Just doing some rebalancing, some nipping and tucking, raise a little bit of cash certainly won't hurt you. You'll still be able to participate, but if the markets do start to correct, you've already done a little bit of the work and then you can go into further risk management mode at that point. That's what you need to know before the bell this morning when we'll come back. We're gonna talk about housing a little bit this morning. We wrote an article on Friday about the housing issue and why Elizabeth Warren wants to actually make it worse for you. We'll talk about that after the break. Don't go away. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. Nothing sinks a marriage quicker than money issues. This Valentine's Day, promise you'll respect your lover's credit, communicate about your money, and share together our first candid coffee for 2024. Five money habits of unhappy couples. Saturday, February 24th, Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff will have money tips to help revive your financial harmony. Register now at realinvestmentadvice.com. Five money habits of unhappy couples. Candid coffee with Ratliff and Rosso. Realinvestmentadvice.com. The Real Investment Show. Welcome back to the show this morning. So, um, you know, we hear a lot about what's going on in the housing market and, and you know, a lot of issues with affordability in particular, especially for the younger generation that are, you know, graduating college and, you know, trying to get a job, start a family, whatever it is. And, uh, you know, one of the big complaints is, is that they just, you know, you, you can't afford it. And, you know, they, they make a lot of comparisons, right? They, they go, well, you know, baby boomers, they could buy a house for like 50 grand and, you know, live in it. And, you know, now the houses are 300,000. Well, that's not really a fair comparison because, you know, my dad, when he was working as a warehouse manager for Dow Chemical, he made like $30,000 a year back then. So, I mean, you know, salaries were a lot different, inflation, you know, all those type of things. Houses were much different too. I mean, houses, uh, you know, the house I grew up in, very basic, one, you know, one and a half baths and three bedrooms, 1,100 square feet. Houses were just, you know, kind of small, 
plain houses. They they didn't have pools and fancy kitchens and all this other stuff that we put in houses today because we think we need those things, right? And and you know, it's, we go we had this conversation, you know, previously about needs and wants. You know, what do you need in your house and what do you want in your house? And those are two very different things. So so it's not really a fair comparison to look back in history and say, well, you know, baby boomers and Gen Xers had it so much better with housing. Now, I'm not telling you there's not problems with housing, and, and housing is unaffordable today, and there's some reasons for that. And then, so I wrote an article on Friday um, talking about housing affordability and, and what's causing it and why policies continue. And, and again, uh, Elizabeth Warren and three Democrats are pushing Jerome Powell to cut interest rates to make housing more affordable. That's not going to make housing more affordable. It will make housing more unaffordable. And the the reasons are obvious, but we'll we'll go through them. But again, you know, so you know, if you take a look at housing affordability and there's a you know, there's a chart that's put out by the National Association of Realtors and you know, obviously houses are very unaffordable because of price and they they're now as unaffordable as they were in 19 19- 85 when Gen Xers were buying houses. <laughs> so, you know, this is, you know, you think about if you're, if you're a Gen Xer, you're born 1965 or later. So let's say you're born in 1965, 1985, you're 20 years old. Okay. Housings are, housing is just affordable, unaffordable for Gen Xers back then as it is today. So again, these comparisons you see a lot just, you know, kind of really aren't valid aren't valid. But, you know, this is the, the issue with affordability. And what what and, and let's talk about affordability. What does that mean? Well, it's not just the price of the house, right? That is one, right? That part of it is the price of the house. But it's also mortgage rates and the other things that go into, you know, buying a house. And that's what how that's how the National Association of Realtors develops this affordability index based on, you know, incomes and interest rates and all these type of things. But, you know, and one of the things that they complain about right now, and one of the reasons that they're saying, well, housing is unaffordable is they say, well, there's just not enough supply, right? Supply is the issue. Well, that's not really a true statement. So if we look at supply, right? So supply is is how many available houses are there on the market at the current times, right? So how many months worth? Of, so if, if there were no more houses built, no more houses came to the market, how long would it take? How many months would it take to go through all the houses that are available on the market right now? We're about eight months. And a little over eight months, almost nine months. And that's a pretty high level. Normally, when you're at this level of supply of houses, you're in a recession, which is bringing house, housing prices down, right? Because nobody's buying a house, so housing prices are coming down. And you know, not surprisingly, this the supply of houses has risen because the Fed's been hiking rates, and a couple of things are going on here. But basically, mortgages now are now seven and a half percent. Right, so people can't afford to buy a house, right? Or I shouldn't say they can't afford it. You, you know, there's people that can afford to buy a house with a seven and a half percent mortgage, but a lot of people are going, "Well, I don't want." It, it's not really that it's unaffordable and they can't do it. It's just I don't want to pay a seven and a half percent mortgage, right? I'm used to four, or three, or whatever the number is, 
And so I don't want to do a 7.5% mortgage because I'm going to three. And then for a lot of people that are in their houses, they're saying, well, I'm not going to sell my house now, even though I could get a good price for it because I don't want to go buy another house with a 7% mortgage. So, you know, that's some of the stuff that's going on psychologically. But there is a lot of supply of homes right now in the markets. And in fact, if we take a look at the house price index, as compared to Fed funds rate, housing prices have fallen rather sharply. So the annual change in home prices is now up about 9% on a year-over-year basis, but it was up over 18% previously. So the, the price of homes is still elevated, right? It's still increasing, and home prices are still going up, um, but they're not going up as fast as they were. When we say, and and the, why why was there's of course you know we have to say well why was there this big massive spike in home prices that occurred well it's because we sent stimulus checks to households and people got down payments in the mail and we were willing to give people a three percent down payment on a mortgage and so you give me fifteen hundred bucks or two thousand in the mail I've got a down payment for a house so people were and and we read stories to you on the air we were talking about the issue of these you know young millennials were getting checks in the mail. And then they were buying houses sight unseen. They were just, you know, there was such a bidding frenzy for houses. They were literally buying houses in neighborhoods they didn't want to live in. They were buying houses they'd never seen before, you know, just, you know, just just trying to buy a house. Right. So, of course, when you have that kind of demand surge. Guess what happens with prices? Right. They go up. So, you know, we've got to work. We're working through that process. Right. And we take a look at CPI. We'll have a shot at CPI this week. And you know, we'll see that the homeowner's equivalent rent, which is coming down slowly, right? And so that's starting to reverse. But that's all that stimulus that was in the system is having to back out. So, you know, and again, we can kind of see this also. Um, we'll talk about this, but look, housing prices are the most basic of economic equations. It's supply and demand. And, in, and whenever you do something economically, that causes a shift in supply or demand, you're going to have problems with prices. So, you know, we have normal demand, normal supply. Prices are going to be, you know, normalized, right? Send checks to households, which is going to boost demand, and you cut supply, you're going to get a problem with price, right? And that's exactly what happened during the pandemic. So we're having to reverse all of that. So, yes, housing is certainly unaffordable. It's trying to normalize, but it's going to take a long time. But there's some other there's some other issues. So, you know, one of the things, you know, what what's been causing housing unaffordability is not something that occurred just since the pandemic. This started at the turn of the century. Prior to the turn of the century, <laughs> my wife was panicking over the weekend because she saw this video that said 50 years of makeup. And so this girl was going to do this video about the changes in how women do makeup over the last 50 years, and it started in 1980. <laughs> so, <laughs> you just kind of thought it was going to start in the 50s, didn't you, babe? Anyway, um, so when you take a look back prior to the turn of the century, right, wages mostly kept up with housing prices. Housing prices rose with inflation and wages kept up with home prices. 
for the most part. Now, there, there were there were little periods where, you know, housing prices kind of ele- elevated a bit because, you know, the economy was doing really well, et cetera. And, and so, you know, that but they stayed fairly close. The, the rate of the rate of growth between wages and inflation were about the same. And then we got into 2000. Now, there's a reason why housing prices stayed anchored to wages for the most part prior to 2000. And that was because in order to buy a house, you had to have 20% down and a good credit score. That was it. You had a good credit score, 20% down, you could buy a house. Then in the late 90s, early 2000, Alan Greenspan started pushing adjustable rate mortgages. Right? We need to get more people into home ownership. Home ownership, the American dream. Home ownership is not the American dream. We've gone through this before. But he started pushing adjustable rate mortgage. And at the same time, we are starting, the Federal Reserve is becoming much more active in the financial markets, in the monetary markets, cutting rates. We go through the dot-com crash, come out of that, and as we're going into the post-dot-com era, we start coming up with all kinds of so once you open the door for adjustable rate mortgages, that just opened up the door for Wall Street and the banks. And we come up with all kinds of new mortgage structures to get people into houses they can't afford. We'll come back from the break. We're gonna talk about those evolutions and why we are where we are in terms of housing unaffordability, and we'll go through the fixes to fix the problem if you really want to. Be right back on the Real Investment Show. investment advice blog it's required reading for the informed investor catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com so just for the uh the end of the break we're talking about uh, you know the changes that happened post 2000 so prior 2000 20 down good credit post 2000 you have an explosion in housing prices because you have adjustable rate mortgages, uh, no income, no job mortgages, no income verification, um, fog a mirror, get a loan mortgage. You know, we just had all these type of mortgages come around. Of course, you know, subprime issues were the other the other issue. And this, and, and of course, whenever you make it easier for people to access funds, whether they can afford it or not. That's going to create demand for houses. And, of course, then, you know, once this was occurring in the mortgage industry, the banks loved it. Wall Street loved it. Right? They're making money hand over fist, issuing out mortgages. And during the height of it, you know, uh, you know, J.P. Morgan and Bank of America and others are fraudulently, you know, making mortgages. And we went through that whole process during 2008. But. Not surprising, right? And of course, you flip on HGTV, and there's you know how to flip a house, how to buy a house, and sell it quick, and you know just all this stuff that's going on. But 
this is the evolution. So, of course, coming out of 2008, there's a lot of destitution in the housing market. All these houses are you know, sitting empty, whatever. And institutions then come in and go, hey, we're going to buy these houses and turn them into rentals. We'll buy these houses cheap. We'll buy them you know, directly from the banks. We won't go through the open market process. We'll just buy them directly off the books of the banks. And you know, this led to a whole rash of institutional purchases of, of homes. In fact, um, in 2023, last year, 44% of all single-family home sales were done by institutions, right? So, again, that's when they have unlimited capital, they can outbid you. And in a lot of cases, they're buying these houses. They're buying whole blocks of houses in some, in some cases before they even come to market. So, you know, that removes supply from the average person but increases the price of homes because of that corporate demand for houses. And of course, then, you know, on top of that, we have Airbnb and all these other things where people are going out and buying a second house that can afford it and they're flipping it to an Airbnb and that's fine. Nothing wrong with that. That's capitalism, right? But it removes supply of, of homes from the market. So that leaves whatever other supply is available is going to cost more and money in terms of price. Um, but again, you know, so activity is fine. Supply is, so, so we have plenty, we have nine months of supply of homes, right? Right now, to, uh, housing activity. So we, we, we created a, a composite index called the total, total housing activity index. And this is the, the entire process of the homes that are in the market. So it's new home sales, existing home sales, permits to build new homes, housing starts. So we look at all those. That's the entire process. I start a home, you know, I permit it. I start it, I finish it, I sell it, right? And then you have new uh, existing home sales on top of that. So that's the entire process. And that's at near record highs. So plenty of activity going on in homes, right? Higher interest rates certainly impacting home prices to some degree. But like I said, we, home prices have come down. The rate of home price appreciation has slowed. But plenty of supply. Plenty of activity. And, and so the problem is twofold. One is that existing home sales have completely plummeted. And again, the reason is simple. If I own a home, I'm not going to sell my house and go get a 7.5% mortgage if my mortgage is 3 or 4%. So existing home sales are certainly feeding into this problem because that means there's you know, increased demand for what new supply coming to market is. So we have an imbalance that's going on. If you take a look at the housing price activity index, again, that, that composite index, you know, and we kind of look at, at these booms and busts that occurs over time, you know, that's been a function of the Fed hiking rates. And again, we haven't seen that massive correction in the housing price activity index because of what's happening else in the rest of the market. See, normally right now with Fed's hiking rates as much as they have and, and mortgage rates over 7.5%, we should see a huge decline in activity. Home builders should be going, I'm not building any more homes right now because I can't sell what I got, right? 
But because nobody's selling existing homes, there's plenty of demand for new homes. So it's keeping that that activity elevated despite these high rates. So that kind of brings us to the point, though, of of all this, which is Elizabeth Warren and three other Democrats, they went to Jerome Powell and said, you need to lower interest rates at the January meeting. This was prior to the January meeting to make housing more affordable. Well, if the Fed starts cutting rates, that's not going to make housing more affordable. It's going to make it worse. Because now mortgage rates go up and now you can increase demand even more. So that's not the solution to lowering home prices and making housing more affordable. There's only one solution. And we go through in the article. And look, I'm going to tell you right now, I'm going to ruffle some feathers with what I'm about to tell you. But. It's just the facts. And these are just, you know, there's only a couple of ways that you can fix the home price affordability problem. The first thing we've got to do is something that I'm, I'm, I, I'm loath to do because I'm a huge capitalist. I believe in capitalism. I should, I, you know, you, you have to let capitalism work. But there are some times that capitalism can have a negative impact. And housing is one of those. When you have 44% of all home sales going institutions who are turning them into rentals, there's an imbalance between that supply and, 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 and providing for the overall population. So the first thing you have to do is you've got to restrict all corporate an institutional buying of, of individual homes. I don't care about multifamily. You can go build all the apartments you want. You want to go build commercial high-rises. Don't care. You want to be retail strip centers. There's plenty of real estate for institutions to be playing in. Individual homes, you got to pass a bill that says no institutional buying at all. And, that's, and in fact, I would go one step further. There is actually a bill circulating on the floor. It'll never go anywhere. But... It would require institutions to liquidate their individual homes 10% a year for over 10 years. So, in other words, they have to be completely liquidated out in 10 years. That would be a help. That bill will never pass. Restricting all institutional, all institutional buying from home sales will never pass either. In fact, all these solutions will never pass, right? And this is why I call it in the article, it's called the terrible, terrible solution because nobody will want this. But this is the only thing that will ever fix and return homes back to a trend where they grow with the rate of inflation and adjust relative to incomes, right? And make housing more affordable. So got to get institutions out, got to remove that demand. So now we return demand back to the actual individual. It's just you and me out there buying homes. That's it. If you're going to buy a house, you got to live in it. Got to increase the lending standards to ensure that people can afford the house. Um, I'm going to read this to you just uh, as I wrote it because it's important. Increase the lending standards to require a minimum 15% down payment, not 20 like it used to be, just 15. And a good credit score. Such would also increase the stability of banks against another housing crisis, right? Because you don't have defaults. People can afford their house. Something happens. 
They've got cash flow. They've got savings. They can afford to make the payments. So reduces the impact on banks. You increase the debt to income ratios for home buyers. Again, makes the home buyer more stable. And again, you know, a lot of people push back. Well, I can't save up 15%. Well, there's your problem. You shouldn't, you shouldn't be buying a house. If you can't save up 15% of your income for a house, you should not be buying a house. And the reason is, is because buying a house is an expense. There's always something breaking on a house or maintenance or something that you've got to pay for. And if you can't save up 15%, you don't have the cash flow needed to sustain a house payment and rising insurance costs and homeowners association dues and property taxes and school taxes and all the other crap that goes on with owning a home. If you can save up 15%, that means that you've got your home budget in order to allow you the extra cash flow to adjust for these things that occur when owning a home. Same thing for debt to income. If you're in your eyeballs in debt, you shouldn't be buying a house and adding to your debt problem, right? Return the mortgage market back to strict, uh, strict fixed rate mortgages. No more adjustable rate, split mortgages, all that, right? You, you put 15% down, you avoid your PMI. Again, we have to adjust PMI for less than 20. So you move it down to 15 as well. But you just you get one mortgage for the house. That's it. No more working your way around the angles to come up with some fancy way to do a house because it just allowed too many people to buy houses they couldn't afford. Require all banks that extend mortgages to hold 25% of the mortgage on their books instead of them just taking it, shelving it off to Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, whoever. They have to maintain skin in the game. And guess what that does? That increases lending standards, but also keeps them in the game as well. Again, that's going to also, at that point, shore up the banks against future problems as well. Yeah, they're all tough standards. Nobody's ever going to want to do that. But that's the only way you're ever going to return the housing market back to normality. And it's going to be terrible for a while. It's going to be a few years where you can't afford nothing. Nobody's going to be buying a house. But that's exactly what it takes to bring those housing prices back down and rebalance supply and demand in the markets. All right, wrap up the show. We'll uh, wrap up the segment. We'll come back, wrap up the show. Don't go away. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. So welcome back to the show this morning. Uh, just ready to wrap things up here. So today, not not really much out today in terms of economic data. We have the New York Fed um, inflation expectations. Now, that's important, mind you, inflation expectations, because that is, you know, tells you kind of what the expected trend of inflation is. And that's been trending lower. So people are expecting lower rates of inflation in the future. And that has a lot of correlation to things like yields and, and other things in the market. So it's worth paying attention to. Um, but tomorrow, um, we have the NFIB Small Business Optimism Report. So that'll be uh, interesting. That's still in very recessionary territory. Small businesses, 50% of your employment in the country, are, are not very optimistic about things. In fact, I've got an article coming out next Friday on some of these recent employment points and we're getting a little bit more in detail about the impact of, of, you know, childbirth and fertility rates and immigration 
on employment and some of the things that are going on inside of the employment factor and, and, and why our employment sector and why there's such a dichotomy between these roaring headlines of employment of 300,000 and kind of what reality is. So that's next Friday. Um, that'll, that, that'll be on the website. Um, but also tomorrow is CPI. Uh, so we'll get a look at CPI. It's expected to come in at 0.2. There is some indications that might come in a little bit weaker than expected, around 0.1. We'll see what we'll see what that turns out to be. Um, obviously, a weaker than expected CPI report. That's going to be you know bullish for the market because that means the Fed's going to you know you know cut rates or not cut rates, you know, however the market's going <laughs> to interpret it. Um, you know, what right now the, the you know, kind of the big issue is this divergence between what the market expects, five to seven rate cuts, versus the Fed saying three, right? And so now markets are beginning to come around to the fact because of this employment report that we got uh, in January, we're starting to see the number of rate cuts starting to come down some. So the markets are beginning to cut their expectation on the number of rate cuts. So again, the market's going to have to eventually align with what the Fed's going to say. And again, right now, the markets are still kind of anticipating a March rate cut or a May rate cut. Um, the Fed's probably somewhere second half of the year, maybe, at this point. So you know, we'll see how this all works out. But you know, all these numbers that we're going to be getting, we're going to be scrutinizing very closely. So again, tomorrow... We'll have the CPI, the month over month, the core, um, real average hourly earnings uh, will come out because we have our, you know, we had hourly earnings come out with the employment report. And what was interesting about that is that earnings went up, but hours worked went down pretty sharply. And so the only reason that wages rose is because you were getting the same amount of money but working less hours. So the way Fed math works is, is if you make the same money but work less hours, you're actually getting a raise. That's how their math works. But <laughs> your, your paycheck's the same and everything's just costing more. But what they'll do tomorrow is, with that CPI report, is they'll adjust those wages for inflation. So we'll get average real earnings tomorrow as well uh lots of earnings still out this week as well uh we've got avis today monday.com waste management uh zoom info that'll be interesting to watch you know the 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 whole zoom environment etc um also tomorrow is airbnb as we were talking about a minute ago um I'll, i'm always fascinated with airbnb because not that I would own the company, but they're a really great proxy for what's going on with discretionary spending, right? I mean, if you're having trouble making ends meet, you're probably not renting an Airbnb. And by the way, Airbnbs are just ridiculously expensive anyway. So it's it's going to be interesting to hear what they have to say about demand for Airbnbs. Um, it'll be interesting to uh, see what they say about pricing of Airbnbs. Uh, those type of things. So it's a really good proxy for that discretionary spending side of, of, the, of the economy and whether or not that's holding up as well as everybody thinks. Um, Datadog uh, on the technology side, uh, Hasbro, Marriott International, Robinhood on the stock trading platform. Always interested about that one, uh, simply from function that Robinhood's a good proxy for you know, young retail stock jockeys 
And remember, they had they were just blowing and going with all the stimulus checks, and everybody was out buying stuff. And now lately, we've had a resurgence in Bitcoin. Uh, Bitcoin's trying to rally here again, um, you know, after these new Bitcoin ETFs. So it'll be interesting to see if traffic has now picked up with Robinhood. Are these young kind of millennial Gen Zer, you know, kind of stock traders? Are they all jumping back onto Robinhood? They had kind of left there for a while when they lost all their money. Are they all coming back again uh, to do this, or do they not have any money to spend? So that'll be an interesting report to look at from that point. Shopify and Zillow Group. Zillow, of course, good proxy for the real estate market. What's actually, you know, is, is the housing market holding up as well as we think, or is there something else going on? Zillow is a really good proxy for that as well. So again, some, 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 some good ones coming out tomorrow um, that'll kind of give us a, a good look at some things that are actually going on in the economy. So we'll kind of touch on those this week as, as they come along. Um, you know, outside of that, uh, again, you know, just kind of coming back to the market for a moment, because again, it's, you know, as I was saying earlier in the show, is that we're going to start kind of rebalancing our portfolio risk starting this week. Don't know if we'll do it today or tomorrow or when we'll do it, but we're going to start rebalancing some of that risk. And, and simply just from the function that there's so much exuberance, so much excitement in the markets right now, everybody's so bullish, that bothers me, right? Just from a, as you know, just kind of from a contrarian standpoint, everybody is so optimistic that Nvidia can only go up from here, or AMD is only going to go up from here, whatever, right? That, that these stocks are just they're on a vertical one-way trip higher, and and maybe they are, right? Maybe we are entering into a melt up type markets, you know, um, it's certainly possible. I'm not going to discount that. And those those melt ups can last a lot longer than you expect. And those can go on for a year. They event they they all eventually end, right? Um, but the question is always timing of that. So again, you know, I, you know, as I was saying, is like we're going to start kind of rebalancing some risk. Now, you know, when we talk about rebalancing risk, that doesn't mean we're selling a bunch of stuff. It just means we're reducing you know, positions to target weight because now they're overweight because of the big runs they've had. Or we're taking positions that are underweight and bringing them up to, to model weight because they're more defensive and they'll, they'll tend to provide some shelter in the storm if we start getting a correction. So, again, we're doing a little bit of that risk management. So we're going to be doing that um, over the course of this week, next week. Uh, but, you know, we're kind of letting the market dictate how we approach that. And, and again, we've got some some data going on this week that could certainly lead to, you know, a pop in the market. So we don't want to be, you know, in too big of a rush to do things, because, again, uh, if we get a really weak CPI report tomorrow, that could be a big boost to um, the market in the short term for a day or two. Right. We saw a lot of earnings coming out right now. So that's helpful. Uh, the buyback windows for. A lot of these companies are all opening back up. So a lot of these companies are announcing stock buybacks. So that's beneficial. So there's there's a lot of things that are going on that could that could certainly allow this market to kind of grind itself higher here. But again, just from the standpoint of exuberance and you know, positioning, um, overbought conditions, deviations from long-term moving averages. There's there's a lot of indicators that suggest we are closer to a correction than not. And so as a function of that, we want to begin some taking some early steps into rebalancing risk and and uh, 
kind of shoring up the portfolio a little bit against a potential correction. And then once the correction begins, right, and we can see that we're starting a, a more corrective cycle in the markets. And again, when I say a correction, that doesn't mean 40, 50% decline. That just means a 5 to 10% correction or just a consolidation that goes nowhere for a few months. Then we can take some further action and reduce, raise cash, you know, increase bond exposure, whatever it is, a little bit more. So again, you don't have to do all these things all at once. And you know, the important lesson here is, is not to overreact. And you know, I see this a lot with people. It's like, well, Lance said that the market's going to correct, so I'm just going to go all the cash. <laughs> well, the problem is the market can keep going up for a while, and then you're sitting in cash, and what's going to happen is the market's going to keep going up. So, well, Lance was wrong. I'm going to get back in, and that'll be where it starts to correct. And that's just how it happens. And again, I'm not saying the market's going to correct tomorrow. It could be tomorrow. It could be next week. It could be next month. It could be three months from now. I just, you know, just what my experience tells me and what the data tells me is that sometime between now and October, we're going to have a 5 to a 10% correction of some sort. Just don't know when it's going to start or what's going to cause it. So that's why I'm saying just, you know, move slowly, nip and tuck, right? This is, you know, as we talked about before, you know, talking about, you know, Super Bowl last night is that, you know, football is, they, you know, they say football is a game of inches, right? If I can just make a few inches on every down, right, I can move the ball into scoring position. So it's a game of inches. Same thing with your portfolio. It's just a game of inches. Small moves will get you to where you want to go. Just don't overreact. Again, you know, everything's bullish in the markets right now. There's nothing, there's no reason not to be invested in the equity market right now. No reason. Everything is on fire at the moment in terms of market movements. Right? But those things change. Everything cycles. And we just have to be aware of that. Okay. Wrap up the show for the day. We'll come back tomorrow. Um, we'll be talking a little bit more about market exuberance and kind of what's happening on that. So we'll get a little bit more detail. Got lots of charts and graphs for you tomorrow morning as well. So stay tuned. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Get by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Get subscribed to the newsletter, daily market commentary, and make sure to subscribe to this YouTube channel. We do appreciate your viewership and your subscription. It keeps us uh, doing this. All right. Have a great day. See you back here tomorrow.